for Thought is presented by the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state. Here are your hosts, Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Welcome, everyone, and thanks for listening. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. Jerry Brisson will join me in just a few minutes. Recently, I started realizing that to believe in this great mission of creating a food-secure state, you have to be a bit unique, different, and definitely have a positive what's-possible mindset. i known for some time significant starts with a dream, a vision of a better tomorrow, and it takes work, creativity, perseverance, and maybe just a little bit of crazy to realize the dream. It seems a little bit of crazy helps, but it has to be the right kind of crazy. The kind of crazy that allows you to search for what's best. The kind of crazy that allows you to create a culture where ideas win and we are able to discover what's right versus having to be right. This was the thinking model that allowed the NASA EDL team, that's the Entry, Descent, and Landing team, to figure out how to land the rover called Curiosity on Mars. The vehicle was too heavy for normal EDL procedures, so the team at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory had to think differently outside the box, if you will, and maybe what seemed to many a little bit crazy. They did what others said was impossible and what others thought was a bit too risky, but they did it. Their accomplishment of landing a souped-up 4x4 on the red planet convinces me more than ever that impossible is simply a challenge to overcome not a dead-end destination dream killer that it pretends to be. Perhaps we need to think a bit different, even consider a few crazy ideas in order to solve the problems that we've created for ourselves, like childhood hunger. Jerry and I are back shortly to discuss some unique perspectives on some old and difficult problems that are fueled by food insecurity. You come back and be with us. Oh, which come first, the chicken or the egg? Oh, which come first, the chicken or the egg? How could something so fat and blurry come from something so smooth and pearly? Oh, which come first, the chicken or the egg? Welcome back, everyone. What is that song? <laughs> It's a song from Sesame Street when Sesame Street was writing amazing songs, you know. So what came first, the chicken or the egg? And I think this show is intended to address that a little bit when it comes to hunger and poverty. There's a lot of people we talk to in this work that say, you know what, you guys are just a band-aid. You know, you're just a Band-Aid, and you're right. not addressing the root causes. You're only addressing the symptoms. And I really think it's time we hit that head-on and say, if you are trying to solve complex social problems, you cannot do it without addressing food insecurity and hunger. You can't. 
It is a chicken in the egg thing. I understand why people say, well, if people had enough money to buy their own food, they wouldn't be food insecure. So let's fix wages. Let's fix education so people can get higher paying jobs. But but let me just say there's many complications with that theory. But the most significant one to me is if you want to fix poverty, you have to address with compassion the people who are poor today. And they can't be as successful as they want to be if you don't take hunger off the table. You're not just a Band-Aid when you're addressing that for them. You are providing stability, health, and empowerment so people can be as successful as possible. And that is why the chicken and the egg, right? you have got to address hunger before you can ever effectively address poverty. All right, so what you're saying, that's a powerful statement you just made. We're going to unpack that through the rest of this show. But there are a couple of principles that we've established over the two and a half years that we've been doing this award-winning show, and that is food first. That according to Abraham Maslow and the hierarchy of needs, Physiological needs are first. And remind everybody that this is a theory of motivation, that in order to go to the second level of motivation, you have to make sure that the needs are met at the first level. And the first level is physiological, which is air, water, food. And if you're worried about any of those, you're not going to be concerned about the second or the third or the fourth or the fifth level, and the second level being safety. So you're not concerned about that because you're wondering, because you, when you're hungry, the second principle is you only have one problem. So now we're going to talk about really the essence of causation in regard to poverty and food insecurity. Traditionally, historically, and perhaps only, food insecurity has been thought of as a byproduct of poverty. But you have a little different perspective. Well, certainly, if you never had poverty to start with, and everyone was you know, had everything they needed for every everything in their life from the beginning, it would be a different issue, right? But the truth is, you have a world which created some people who are poor. And so those people are with us, and we're helping them, and we're walking with them, and we're part of their journey as they try to be as successful as they can be. So are they part of the solution to poverty? Absolutely. They're one of the most important parts of the solution to poverty. You can't solve it without them. That's right. So you can't just ignore the symptoms in order to address what you what you might call the root cause. You have got to address a root cause of poverty today, which is that you have poor people that need help and helping them is going to is going to mean you solve poverty for tomorrow. Right. We're starting where we are, not where we want to be. That's okay. In fact, we can be inspired by the people we're serving as much as they can be grateful for the help they're getting. Sure. So, Jerry, when you talk about um, food insecurity being a cause and effect in its relationship with poverty, again, that's a bit different perspective. And I would just simply say that why not look at it this way? Because we've traditionally looked at it the other way, where uh, food insecurity was a consequence of poverty, and that hadn't gotten us very far. <laughs> right, right. I mean, since LBJ was president and he declared the war on poverty, it doesn't look like we're really winning. And it was Ronald Reagan who said poverty won. 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so here you've got uh, a traditional of 30, 40, 50, 60 years of work in this field, and we really haven't looked at this thing differently and that's what you and I are proposing today. And we have to, because as we demonstrate the impact of our work and say this isn't just a Band-Aid, this is a critical part of fixing the system, we have to be able to show that. And we have to be able to show that it's not just us thinking it, too. So, you know, I just read an article recently. It came out February 4th from Concern Worldwide. And it's the title of the report was The Top Nine Causes of Global Poverty. And you know what the number one is I do, but go ahead and tell us. Inadequate access to clean water and nutritious food. Number one cause of global poverty. Now, people then jump to, well, that's not what we have in the United States. I am sorry. Look at the number of people living well below the poverty level in the United States, and you're going to find they have inadequate access to clean water and nutritious food, which was the number one reason for the causes. The causes, can I just say again, causes of global poverty. So we're going to keep unpacking this over the rest of the course of the rest of the show. But I want to end this first segment by saying that, you know, there was a um, uh, Edwards Deming, which is known to be a great American statistician. And he said, uh, in God we trust, everybody else bring data. And, <laughs> and I think you brought some data for us, and we're going to unpack that to help us highlight the point I don't I want to say prove, but I want us to think differently, and perhaps, as a result of this show, we'll think better. He's Jerry Prasan. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. This is Food for Thought. We'll be back in just a moment. It's Food for Thought on WJR with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. We're back here on Food for Thought. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. We're talking about something that probably is a little bit unsettling to some folks because it's very different perspective on an age-old problem, that problem being poverty. And we're saying that when people are food insecure and they're held captive by the toxic stress of that lifestyle, their mind's really not free to think about some of the other problems or challenges they have that are keeping them trapped in poverty. So you brought data. I did. I brought a number of different ways to understand why you can't just fix systems without fixing food insecurity. So I want to cover education for a minute. Now, the last uh, several years, we've been up at the Mackinac Policy Conference, right. and we've heard a lot about fixing education. And I don't want to give the impression that I think that's not important. It's really, really important. Well, we have a great partnership with the Michigan Department of Education on several different levels, including the distribution. Uh, distribution of emergency food. Uh, you're doing several pilots with them about addressing food security on a school district-wide level. So we believe in education. There's, There's no, no question. Right. 
So one of the things that people point to when they talk about how fixing education solves poverty is the average earnings by education that the U.S. Census Bureau puts out. And I'm just going to give those average earnings by education level. If you have an advanced degree, your average earnings per year are $78,000 or more. If you have a bachelor's degree, your earnings on average are over $51,000. If you have a high school diploma, and that's the level of education you stop at, your average earnings are just over $28,000 a year. And if you have no high school diploma, then your average earnings per year are just over $19,000. So we all know that just over $19,000 isn't enough to live on. And I want to throw a little bit of a toss to the self-sufficiency standard, which we talk specifically about what households need to meet all of their basic needs. And I know, Phil, you've got a copy of it, so just give us a a snapshot there. So just looking at Wayne County, and you can find this at our website. It's a tableau there. It's uh, fbcmich.org slash self-sufficiency standard. You can go there. You can put your county in wherever you're at, and you can discover what it takes for some 719 different household types in order to be self-sufficient, and we define self-sufficiency as being something, uh, a, a place financially, economically, where a family would not need charity, us, or any government assistance. So let's just look at Wayne County. That's where we're at recording today. And you gave a, what was the lowest figure you, it was someone who didn't have a high school education. Has uh, average earnings of just over $19,000 a year. Okay, so a single adult, and no parent, no dependents in their life in Wayne County would need to make $25,572 annually in order to be self-sufficient. And understand that this budget, there's no pizza here. There's no vacations. This is just a it's housing, child care, food, transportation, health care, miscellaneous taxes, Earned income credit, child care credit, child care, all that kind of stuff. It's giving them the benefit of the of the policies that are in place, but even that person that you just talked about is about six grand short of being self-sufficient for a very basic subsistent budget. So then you might conclude that, well, get a high school diploma. Your average earnings go up to over 28000 and now you're okay. You would be, you would, I don't, yeah, you're going to have to define okay for me there. (laughs) Um, You know, because, I mean, I think, I think really the ability to enjoy your life here rather than just survive it is a goal that we have for everyone who lives in this country. Excellent point. I agree. Uh, So, but here's the, the why you can't just do that. And it's because of what we want when we go out to eat, right? And I know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tie this together. When you go out to eat, you're making enough money. You've got an advanced degree. You're making over $78,000 a year on average, and you want to go out to eat. Do you want someone to wash the dishes? Well, if I'm eating after you, I definitely do. <laughs> do you want someone to serve your table? Yeah. Do you want someone to sweep the floor? Do you want someone to cook that meal? Mm-hmm. And the bottom line is many of those people, even if they had a high school diploma or a bachelor's degree, are not going to make those average wages. 
So if you just fix education, but you don't change that you want someone to wash dishes, cook food, serve your table, you're not going to fix poverty just by fixing education. You, you, it's much more complicated than that, right? Yeah. So let me push back on you just a little bit there and say, so what is it the responsibility? And we had this conversation on several occasions, particularly with Rob Fowler from the Small Business Association. But we've also had it with Cindy Estrada, the vice president for General Motors UAW. So we've gotten, you know, corporate and union and small business perspective on this show. You can go back at foodsecuremichigan.org and find those shows. Great perspectives. But what about the push to increase the minimum wage to the place where all those positions you just described are are making a self-sufficiency living wage? What's what's the what's the what's the pushback on that? Well, the the it, again, it becomes well. What do you want? Do you want to pay twenty dollars for a meal out or forty two dollars? I so mean, it's about market conditions. I mean, there's no question. You you have to consider all those things. So so when we get back to the idea of work supports, right? So that you can have someone washing the dishes in the restaurant that you're eating out at, who maybe can't be paid at the same rate that they would need to be paid in order to have a sufficient wage. What are all the supports you can put in place to make that a palatable job? Right now, the truth is, maybe you'll never be able to support a family of seven as a dishwasher in a restaurant. And but maybe you can put the supports in place to make someone who's going to college and working as a dishwasher or someone who's, you know, a single person or maybe in early in their career in life sure. to develop work skills and habits to make that job palatable for them. And and actually support them with food and other things so that. It becomes a job they can be at for a period of time, learn those skills, and not be food insecure, so then they can get training to do something else. But even if they do, someone else is going to have to come in and wash dishes. Sure. Right? Right. So when we look at these jobs, and of the 10 jobs in Michigan that provide 25% of all jobs, 9 out of 10 of those jobs don't provide a sufficient wage for people to meet their basic needs. So we can't just fix education and expect it to solve poverty. Again, a correlation issue here uh, between uh, a a data that could, could be, you could draw these assumptions, but they would be wrong. And that's why we have to continue to work on the symptoms. We have to continue to work on giving people the support they need while they're doing nine out of 10 jobs in Michigan that account for 25% of all jobs in Michigan that don't pay a sufficiency wage. It's not just a Band-Aid. It is stabilizing, it is improving people's health, and it is empowering them in their life to be successful. At the same time, it's giving us the dishwasher at the restaurant, it's giving us the the person who's serving us, it's giving us the cook perhaps, and other people in the, a whole industry that is going to struggle to pay sufficient wages. So it's not really about the people, it's really about this is what this position pays, whether that's in a small manufacturing 
company, whether that's in the service industry as you described in the food service industry, or whether that's any place else. This is what the position pays, and this is what the position is always going to pay. So when we stop looking at it as people and we start seeing it, this is the position, this is what it pays, these are the market conditions, now we can help people where they're at, not where we all wish they were, and structure both federal and state policy to provide work supports across that self-sufficiency standard until they get there, instead of dropping people off the financial cliff as we currently do. Yes, sir. So that's, that's, that's okay. I'm with you. I'm tracking with you. I like the conversation. We need to continue it. And he's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. You're listening to Food for Thought. We're back in just a moment. You're listening to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Brought to you by the Food Bank Council of Michigan. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're back on Food for Thought. Jerry Brisson, Dr. Phil Knight. And, um, okay, I think that they were maybe a little unsettled in the first segment. They really might be upset at this point. Or they might be, wow, I've never really thought about it like that. That's what we really hope. We want to help people think better and think differently. And, you know, you as anyway, you're doing that, and I appreciate it. So we're talking about the relationship, the causation relationship between food insecurity and poverty. That's right. And hopefully we can get that chicken and egg music going again because, (laughs) uh, I mean, it is really looking at the chicken and the egg. And when we hear people talk about fixing complex social problems, you often hear them talking about, well, don't fix the symptoms, fix the system. Right. And they they put our work in the symptom category. And that's what I want to change. I want to change that conversation. Our work is not Band-Aid work. This is work that is critically important to fixing the system. So we talked a little bit in the last segment about how fixing education doesn't fix the fact that there's a lot of jobs that aren't going to pay sufficiency wages no matter what your education level is. You could be a PhD and be That's exactly washing right. dishes. So that's the first point. Right. The second point is, even if you want to fix education, you can't do it without fixing food insecurity. So, so let's just talk about poverty. Right now, 21% of all U.S. children are living at the poverty level or worse. So let's just think about that for a minute. So we talk about the United States of America being a first world country. And as people, our regular listeners know, 198 countries in the world, I've been in 128 of them, right? So lots of travel, seen lots of things, lots of living circumstances. And here's what I want you to think about, Jerry. Yes, the United States of America is a first world country. But not everyone in the United States of America is living in a first world country. And that's a different perspective. When you tell me that 21% of the children born in this nation are born into poverty, you cannot refer to the United States of America as a first world country only. 
you have some people living in third world conditions in a first world country. And it's confusing because of what we see when we walk down the street. Right. So you walk down the street in a in a country where you have um, people who don't have running water, for example, who are who maybe are raising their chickens in the house they're living in. And I mean, you know, you see that when you walk down the street and you can go, oh, oh. And so we don't see that when we walk down the street in this country. And we're very proud people, which is actually, I think, a very good thing. And so we don't talk about it when we can't make ends meet. We just don't. Right. So so it's it's a cognitive dissonance, right? When we think about what we see every day, we say, well, we don't have third world conditions in this country. In fact, we do. You look at infant mortality rates, you look at, you know, other things. There's lots of things we can look at here, and I, I don't want to get too far off the point, but your point is well made. We do have people living in conditions that would be third world problems. Absolutely. And so, so we want to fix education. We want everyone who goes through our education system to start at a certain point and end at a certain point. And that's what we mean by fixing it, right? We want, when people graduate from high school, we want them to be literate, right? We want them to be able to do basic math. Right. Because if you're even going to be a a footlocker employee (laughs) and and you're going to help you know, cashier that that uh, organization, you are going to have to be doing basic math. Counting right? helps. And you're going to have to read simple instructions and you're going to have to follow those instructions, right? So education is what gets people to be able to do that. And we want people who go through our system that we invest a lot of money in, children we're talking about here, to be successful at that at the end. So one of the primary indicators of whether someone will be literate and be able to do basic math is that they have a third grade reading level by third grade. It is one of the primary indicators. There's a lot of conversation about that. A lot of conversation in Michigan about that because it's a legislative mandate in Michigan that of course, they're going to talk about that. The governor has a bit of a different perspective. But the the bottom line is third grade reading level by third grade is the best indicator for graduation rates. So now we say, okay, that's a great goal. We love that goal. Let's get to that goal. So how do you get to that goal? Well, certainly you have to have teachers that are capable of teaching and principals that are capable of administering. You have to have systems that measure and support that goal. And all those things are happening, and they're wonderful things. But if you do all of those things and kids are coming to school hungry, teachers will tell you, researchers will tell you, social workers in the schools will tell you those kids are falling behind. And they're falling behind rapidly. And you can't let that continue. So so by saying we're going to fix education, but we don't want to fix the symptom of hunger because, you know, that's beneath us, it doesn't work. You can't do it. It's impossible. So I'm just going to say this, get the cookies on the right shelf here and define reality. Lots of great people doing lots of great things, and I'm talking specifically to funders here across the state, whoever that might be, who has a real compassion and concern for particularly early childhood education. We go to the policy conference every year. I've had this conversation three years ago with major funders that are very concerned about early childhood um, 
development, reading levels, math, all of everything you just described. And when I approached them out on the porch to say, thank you for your uh, emphasis, thank you for your compassion, thank you for your concern, have you considered food security in the life of this child? And they look at me like a deer caught in the headlights. They're not going to be effective or successful without addressing food insecurity in the student's life, not second, not third, but first. And in many cases, when you do get buy-in about, yeah, yeah, we got to feed the kids. That's why we have big programs in schools. The Michigan Department of Ed does a great job of making sure kids get a couple meals in school every day. It's really important. It's a priority. We see that. But people think, well, that's enough. And what we're saying is it really isn't enough because you cannot have a food-secure child in a food-insecure household. So every snow day, kids are not getting those meals. Every summer, kids are not getting those meals. Every weekend, kids are not getting those meals. And if you keep focusing your attention on just feeding the kids in school, you are still leaving a huge gap in that child's life. And we can provide excellent service to kids to households with school-aged children at a very low cost so you can make sure that no child who is school age is food insecure in our state. And it's important that we do that. And we've got to stop thinking about that as a symptom. It's not a symptom. It is a cause of ongoing generational poverty. And we have got to look at it that way and solve it that way. I I, agree. I'm with you, brother. I'm with you. And I, I want to clarify that I'm not angry at funders, and I'm not looking for a revenue stream. I'm trying to help them succeed in their goals so that the community, and particularly the kids, are made better. And they have the best opportunity to become who they can be, and they can't do that unless you address this as a causation factor rather than a symptom of. Critically important if we're going to get where we want to be as a community. And that's the goal. Impact is about all of us. And don't we want kids who can read and do math when they graduate from high school? (laughs) I think we do. Okay. Well, the first step in that is to make sure that they're food secure. So he's Jerry Brisson. I'm Dr. Phil Knight. We're discussing a causation relationship between food insecurity and its effect on our community and how it traps people in poverty. We're going to wrap up this show in just a minute. You come back and be with us. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to Food for Thought with Dr. Phil Knight and Jerry Brisson. Once again, here's Phil and Jerry. Thanks for listening, everybody. We're back here. Uh, so I, I, I know you're get, grabbing people's attention here. So I'm going to get you to uh, tell your Twitter handle again and the hashtag that you're using because I'm. I think you're going to get some follow up on this this show here, and I want people to be able to ex- share their encouragement. And their illumination with you. <laughs> GCFB, that's Gleaners Community Food Bank, just the initials. GCFB, Jerry with a G. G-E-R-R-Y. That's my Twitter handle, GCFB Jerry. And you're and you're using a hashtag in order to for people to ask you questions about some of the content that we have here on the show and in other mediums that we're using. And that hashtag is, is it's hashtag ask Jerry with a G. 
Ask Jerry with a G, and that's G-C-F-B-G-E-R-R-Y. Yep. That's Jerry's tw- Twitter handle. I'll keep my Twitter handle quiet for just a moment here and let... No, I'm kidding. Uh, <laughs> so, I, I, but no, I just want people to be able to, to uh, you know, address some of the thoughts that you're sharing here in a, in a very excellent and concise way. Um, and so, Jerry, I want to pull you into... Uh, this is our last segment, so I, w- I want us to talk a little bit that... We're, you know, in God we trust, everybody else bring data, and we're bringing the data to say that there is some immediate return in addressing food insecurity rather than the systemic problem of poverty. Yes, and I I want to cover another really important data point, and that is the cost just in healthcare annually for not fixing food insecurity. And that is estimated to be $160 billion a year. That's just the cost to health care for not fixing food insecurity. So, again, I want to talk about the chicken and the egg. We want to fix complex social problems. And we talk about things like equity in health care. We have to have equity in health care. But if equity in health care is your goal, and that means every person that needs it has access to it in the right way for them, right? For whatever their condition is. You don't have disparities that some people get better service than others. You're trying to get equity so that everyone who needs care gets the care they need so they can be successful. I think that's an awesome goal, right? So if you want to do that, you're going to have to have resources to fix it. Well, why not $160 billion that we're spending because we're not fixing hunger? And the cost to fix hunger would be less than 10% of that $160 billion for those same patients. So, so again, when we talk about trying to fix systems, you will not have the money you need to fix those systems if you don't solve this problem. It's not just a band-aid and it's nice to say that when we're talking about healthcare. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, that's true. I mean, you know, uh, people I think historically have confused or not understood as well as they should have and some of and we'll take some of the responsibilities for that. That emergency food distribution is much more than a band-aid. It it is a it is a tool. It is a distribution model that not only delivers food but it delivers empowerment, stability, and health into a household that currently doesn't have it. And that's the net impact and effect that the food has. So maybe the way to say that is hunger is a system. Mm-hmm. And it can be fixed. And by fixing that system, you reduce poverty. You increase the amount of resources available to fix the other systems that create poverty and ultimately then create a more effective way of addressing poverty. You can't just fix poverty. You have to fix the systems that create poverty. And one of those systems creating poverty is food insecurity and hunger. So let's fix this root cause 
and get hunger off the table for families and households in our state, and you will see more success, and you will see other systems tremendously positively benefited by taking this issue off the table. So it's a parallel, I think, in what we've said on the show for two and a half years now, and that is, this is what we suspect, that if you can take hunger off the table and replace that with access to healthy, nutritious food, that many of the people that we serve will begin to solve the other problems and challenges in their life themselves. It sounds like a parallel to what you're saying about poverty. That's exactly right. And and I think it's also, if I may say, the most compassionate way to look at it as well. Hmm. Because these are real people. When we talk about hunger statistics, you have to have a face in your mind. It's the face of that child going to school hungry. It's the face of the worker who's worked for three months at a job that doesn't pay sustainable wages and is wondering why they can't pay their bills and have enough to eat at home, even though they're working 50 or 60 hours a week. It's faces of real people. And by taking this issue off the table, you're not just fixing systems. You're caring about people in the way we really ought to care about our neighbors. Excellent, Jerry. Time for a little food for thought. Albert Einstein said, we cannot solve the problems with the same thinking that we use to create them. Our shows are designed to help us and you think differently about the stubborn problem of food insecurity that plagues our communities, schools, children, and all aspects of our society. We find this problem of hunger to be unacceptable. And with a solid belief in our collective goodness, our intellect, along with the ability to challenge ourselves to think better, bigger, and beyond than what we've done to date, we can and will create a solution to hunger in our state and for our state. Thanks for listening to Jerry Brisson and me, Dr. Phil Knight. We're the host of this award-winning show, Food for Thought, and we thank you for listening. You can catch all of our shows at foodsecuremichigan.org. And until next week, remember, it's food first, folks. Food first. Food for Thought has been a presentation of the Food Bank Council of Michigan, creating a food-secure state.